0: listener production this is the five of my life with me nigel marsh the series where i talk to notable people about five of their defining things the way it works is my guests always choose a favorite film book song place and possession they tell me their choices in advance so i can research them but they don't tell me why they've chosen them that's the subject of our conversation The reason I devised this series is I wanted to create a slightly different way to gain an insight into the real lives and thoughts of prominent people. In this conversation, it was both surprising and moving to hear funny man Tony Wilson tell his stories about a life touched by tragedy, a long-held family secret, cerebral palsy, and sudden fame, not to mention his list of the world's best speeches on his wonderful website, SpeakOla. So, Tony, uh, any particular guests or stories have stood out for you on Five of My Life recently? Well, I love Rob Carlton. He's one of my favourite people, fantastic
1: actor, and his five of, five of My Life was just superb. And in fact... I actually knew where he was going to end up because, uh, Rob Carlton, I, I, organized a series of events down here in Melbourne a few years ago, which was called show and tell for Grown Ups, which I think right. you would have, you would have loved this Nigel, that, that, that series. And, and Rob produced the item that he produced for you as the fifth five of my life was the story that he gave to me for show and tell right. for the stick. So, uh, it was, it was just beautiful. And, and I'd say Rob Carlton five stars for his five of my life. It was incredible. He had me in tears as I was walking around doing my uh, daily exercise.
0: Well, he's only just set the bar for you to hurdle, mate. That's it. So (laughs) forget Rob Carlton. We're interested in your five. Thank you so much for sending them through. I've had an amazing time researching them. We're starting with the film that many, many people and many lists have as the greatest comedy film of all time. That's a big call, but lots of lists do have it as the greatest comedy for all time. It's Monty Python's The Life of Brian, 1979. Tell me about it, mate.
1: Well, I I could have gone for something esoteric or something that made me look really cool or not just a a follower of the popular crowd, but I, I just had this film... From, I was I think I was nine or 10 years old when I first saw it, and part of my love for it comes from the circumstances in which I first saw it, which was we had an annual holiday at Wilson's Promontory, which is this uh, wilderness down here in Victoria. It's such a beautiful part of the world, and every year we would go to Wilson's Promontory, and they had an outdoor cinema, and it just was a few bits of canvas kind of strung up together, and the campers would go and it was always very celebratory to go to the outdoor Tidal River Cinema, and I, and I still remember the night that Life of Brian was playing because I sat next to Dad and it was kind of like watching a grown ups film for the <laughs> first time when you're eight or nine or ten and Dad just was falling apart it was it was out of control watching this film and a lot of the jokes now watching it. They must have gone over my head. But at the time, just to see Dad so happy to hear the gales of laughter that were going across this beautiful outdoor cinema with Rosellas in the trees and the sun going over uh, Wilson's Promotory, it was just a, a moment of my life. And, uh, and as it's emerged, um, Life of Brian, you know, when I did understand it all and developed this interesting comedy and this love for Monty Python you know, I sort of see this film as their high point. It said the most. It said it the funniest. It was the grandest in scale, and I think it stands up against any comic film ever made.
0: It's, it's actually, in in some bizarre way, it's slightly underrated for how clever it is. So, so the, the things like, what have the Romans ever done for us? That that is. Uh, a very astute social commentary about pressure groups eating their own when they get you, you know apart from the roads apart from the schools apart from the law apart from the clean water you know that's it, it's actually a very very clever thoughtful film beyond the slapstick beyond the you know the, the the gags that everyone loves
1: well that's a scene that really does stand out as as summarizing every meeting every <laughs> schism of a political group has ever had and it's it's a brilliantly funny scene i remember i did year 12 latin and i remember one of the highlights was our latin teacher sitting us through the romans go home graffiti scene (laughs) uh, where obviously the public school boys that were python um, or some of them at least were and then off to cambridge and oxford they kind of understood the way that a, a, a Latin master would, would drill the students. And so you had those Romani, e, und, de, deum. <laughs> Romani's, they people called Romani's,
0: they go the house. Doesn't say that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <Our> biggest <laughs> <It's> dickus. <laughs> just,
1: yeah, I mean, there's so many. And, and it, uh, so many lines are quoted. And yet, when you watch the film, there's bits that are never quoted that are uh, some of my favourite lines. I, I, I remember... There's one scene where they're searching the house for the the missing uh, Judean people's front um, people, and they they're, they're hid in preposterous positions, you know, heads in laundry baskets, <laughs> but backsides sticking out, and that sort of thing. And John Cleese asks the the army guys, "Did you find anything?" "Found this, sir," and it's just, it's a wooden spoon, and that's and that's all they found <laughs> on the search of the, the house. And you know, that's just a ludicrous joke
0: that I I really enjoyed. The, the, the story of the making of it uh, is fascinating in its own right. You, you know, the, the, the funders, EMI Films, pulled out three days before it was start, going to start filming. And do you know who stepped in to, to save the day? Well,
1: I do know this, Nigel, because it's the greatest moment in my own website's history, which is Speakola. And we have a speech that's done by Eric Idle on that. Yeah, and, it's a, okay. and it's a eulogy for George Harrison, that's, his great friend. what a friend. man. What a man. And George Harrison forms handmade films two days or before they start filming The Life of Brian. He gives three million pounds and uh and makes this film happen. And I think the famous line he said was it's the most expensive cinema ticket ever bought. Because <laughs> he, he he paid for the film simply because he wanted to see it, you know. And and so that was just a, an, an amazing story, and and so I actually tweeted in when I was putting out this eulogy for George Harrison that Eric Idle had delivered, and it's a beautiful speech that's on my speeches website called Speak Speakola, and I tweeted out including the Eric Idle in the in the handle, and um, Eric Idle retweeted it and it went off and got on the front page of Reddit and I had 105,000 hits in a
0: night um, <laughs> with the story of how George Harrison funded Life of Brian. So you mentioned your website, which I think is it's a sensational speaker. So you got over 2,000 of the world's best speeches and I've had such fun going. I'm a bit of a speech junkie myself. And the one that I want to ask you about is because it, It scares me how much I like it and how bad it is, yet how good it is. Is the general pattern one?
1: Oh, yeah. Isn't that That, fascinating? It's
0: absolutely, you go, if you were receiving that speech, you would run up the hill and bayonet somebody in the guts and, you know, and you go, but, ah, it's just so powerful, yet so sort of malevolent. Because it is that
1: element of war where we often lionize these generals, where we think of them as great leaders and great strategists and and great empathists and great people. I I mean, I end up having that view of of people like um, Sir John Monash, you know, I see as this larger than life figure, brilliant strategist, but probably a great person as well and yet the the reality of what they have to do means that some of the people that are going to be in, successful in war are going to be the you know the absolute brawler and yeah. and and maybe not particularly an empathist in fact the thing they're born to do is is to fight and to destroy And I had an element when I read that speech, um, that amazing speech by General Patton, that this is not a likeable man. I mean, he's using, I think one of the lines he uses in it is, um, you know, I don't want you to die for, the the idea isn't to die for your country. The idea is for some other son of a bitch to die for his country. That's right. And, um, and so it's that sort of survivalist instinct. It's the toughness, and yet there's there's sort of a brutal humour in it as well. So so anyone who kind of appreciates the the great sporting coach or footy coach who who is able to summon aggression and passion and the moment using the you know strength of language and humour, um, well Patton's got that. You know, in, in almost the most important days of these young men's lives, it's inc- it's an incredible speech. So I'm going to ask
0: you a question. Uh, the same. Sort of question I asked Nishen Moodley, the director of the Sydney Film Festival, who's seen thousands of film films. I asked him to pick one, which is like a ludicrous question, but it's interesting to see how he answers. You've got 2,000 speeches on Speakola. Uh, you've got to pick one. I've got a gun against your head. Which one's it going to be?
1: Well, for the object of a list show, I will humour the ludicrousness of the question because <laughs> I'm being dragged in about 12 <laughs> directions here. I Have a Dream is trying very hard to get me back over there. And I Have a Dream is the reason why I started this site, the love of that speech, the the revisiting it every year. But I'm not going to say that one. Ah, I'm going to say Robert Kennedy's eulogy to Martin Luther King who delivered I Have a Dream, the speech given on the flatbed truck in the minutes and hours after the confirmed death of Martin Luther King. And Robert Kennedy's ability to summon the moment and the tone and to use this Eshelus poem that he recites and to say something for what feels like a fractured world, I think it just makes me cry every time I listen to it. And I've listened to it now hundreds of times. So well, I'll more... go with the
0: the Robert Kennedy eulogy for Martin Luther King. Well, well done for not choosing the the other one that was pulling you and and. Well done on the website because what a resource. I mean, I, 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 I never can pronounce this lady's name right. Julie Lewis Dreyfus, the one I, yep. I'm laughing my head off. So I, I can't recommend that people go on it and just poodle around and have a look and just click on two or three random ones. It's just so rewarding. And trying to find some of the the less well-known ones as well, like
1: Rob Carlton's speech about his stick that he gave at that show and tell for grown-ups, or or John Gorton, who was a Prime Minister of Australia. He gave a speech to an RSL where he imagined the, his, you know, their dead friends over his shoulder. And he gives this incredible speech to only probably a couple of hundred people in the Kerrang RSL in 1945, months after they returned from war. And again, that's one that really, you know, resonates with me. And and I think about a lot and think is one of the great
0: Australian speeches. Good on you, mate. The the speeches, how how do you take that into your everyday life? How How does it affect you or influence you, if at all? Well, one thing with the great speeches
1: is I sometimes think they reflect their era and the big issues of the era. And I've actually found it quite comforting to hear the most eloquent people express the worries and concerns of their era and it's made me think, you know, as I feel, sometimes things are imploding, you know you might look at climate, or you might look at all sorts of things that feel like they're going wrong. I've actually found it really reassuring to think that things are always going wrong. and that the the story of history and the story that is told through these speeches is that, there's a disaster around every corner and that every generation is dealing with it. And so while it might feel that these things of my time are pressing down on me, um, I find it, yeah, I really find it comforting to know that people have tackled and in in many instances conquered um, problems of the past. Of course, sometimes they don't conquer the problems of the past and they remain problems. and, uh, And that's also the story of the speeches. Sometimes it's just beautiful. So it's like just, enjoying a song, enjoying a speech, you know, that
0: uh, oh, drags no. me back. I, just, I got a good bit of oratory. I'm a, I'm a sucker for that. Um, now, we're going to move from the 70s to the 90s for your second choice, your book choice on Five of My Life. Uh, and you've chosen Fame in the 20th Century by Clive James, a, a book famous for the fact that it literally is the transcript of the eight-part TV series. He, he actually reprinted... Every word that he said in the TV series as a book, and yet the book is still good. But tell me why you chose that.
1: Well, Nigel, you might be suspecting that it's not the book itself here that is going to be the core of the story. And really it, it allows me to talk about Clive James, who right. is at the core of this story. I I I love Clive James, and, and in fact, you know, I, I had to be part of a poetry podcast and to choose a, a poet of my life, and I chose Clive James and 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 if I had to say my favorite autobiography ever written I'd say Unreliable Memoirs right. would be my first Wonderful. choice. So so these are works of Clive James that are more significant than Fame in the 20th Century, which I think is probably a cash-in job from Clive on a <laughs> successful TV series. But at the t- at the age I got Fame in the 20th Century, which was when I was about 20 I had a, I'd sparked my interest in history. I was already studying history at Melbourne University. And I found that this book really connected me with every era of the 20th century. And I learned about people, you know, everyone from Liberace to Teddy Roosevelt to Madonna. And it was all done in all Clive James's kind of witty, uh, funny way, and and so I again enjoyed Clive James's writing. But I also think that this later interest that's become *Speak Ola*, where I've collected the speeches, um, that this was created out of this overall: um, what are these? What are the moments of history? Um, what? Who are the actors of history? And and this book I read over and over again. Um, and, you know, even when I see The Spine on the bookshelf, um, it,
0: it it means a lot to me because it was a, a well-read book. It's the the nature of... Uh, it's a fascinating TV series and a fascinating book, the nature of fame and how it's changed. How in the past, he, he was saying... I mean, I, I just found it fascinating. A, Charlie Chaplin, the first true celebrity of the 20th century. And you go, God, that's right. People who are famous beyond their field of endeavour. But, but also in the past, I mean, it's an obvious point i suppose but for clive james to be making it in the 90s is is quite prescient is uh, you used to be famous because you did something incredible you went up everest or you you flew across the atlantic or you were the best goalkeeper or something uh, whereas then you know mass communication and suddenly you're famous you know you don't really you're just famous for being famous and can you can you remember because i've written them down in front of me i think they're fabulous what a great trivia question who are the three most famous people, according to Clive James, in that book, in the twentieth century?
1: Well, I am now guessing because I haven't read since my uh, my regular devourings of the Ten early nineties.
0: Says you won't get it.
1: Okay, I'll go with Albert Einstein in the three.
0: No. Uh, Adolf Hitler.
1: No. <laughs> now I'm struggling. <laughs> uh, I'll go with maybe a sports person, Pele. No.
0: Absolutely brilliant. And this, this is why, why, why the, the book is so good, because it, on his metric, obviously it's a full scale, but he had Elvis Presley, Muhammad Ali, and Bruce Lee. Uh, yeah, very good. Isn't yeah, that I interesting? Sit- you go, oh, okay. And it's not because they were the most, I mean, they were remarkable Ben, but not because they were the most remarkable people, but just in terms of the new metric that had been invented with you know mass communication and mass media, makes those people, you know, in terms of have you heard of them in every country on the planet that you know that's who we thought
1: well i i can't argue with those and, and and now that you say them it does ring a bell and and i did read the book a lot of times but i actually um, one thing i loved about the rob carlton episode of your podcast was that rob spoke about his book which was some play that he'd studied at uni and it ended up being a a, a, a story about infidelity and what the what the book taught him. Um, and I still remember that story. I think it's the best story that's been told on Five of My Life. Um, and I'm, really, this book is a link for me to the giver of the book. So I loved Clive James and I was given this book in 1993. I would have been 21 years old. And Auntie Sue gave me the book. And Auntie, Auntie, Auntie Sue, Auntie, right. Auntie Sue, she'd been in my life. Um, She'd been in my life my whole life, um, and she'd been Auntie Sue. And to give you some um, of the family background, Sue was the eldest of ten kids. Um, so my dad grew up in Preston in inner north of Melbourne, and he was the youngest of the ten kids. And and Auntie Sue was his older sister, and uh, and she and she was always around. I could have also said that, that, um, you know, the clock radio she gave me when I was 12 years old was significant. It was the first time I ever was really connected to pop music. So she was there as kind of a birthday aunt she'd turn up, she'd give us a book or she'd give us a clock radio and she'd be, um, around for a few hours and a cup of tea. And, uh, it's just interesting that the way that lives can unfold and that the pain that is, um, I think sometimes, uh, that we carry with us. Um, because when I was 41 years old, dad calls us over to his house, he's got four kids and we think, Oh, this is not good news. Cause he's called all four of us and you go, Oh, when, do, when does a parent sit you down and give you, <laughs> is it going to be the, what's the, what's the news going to be? It's unlikely to be really good. And, uh, And so we sat around and I still remember sitting around his fire and he sort of said, oh, look, do do you think there's have you ever thought there's anything strange about my family structure? When I thought, well, yeah, 10 kids is pretty strange, I would have (laughs) thought. And he said, well, what about the five-year gap between nine and 10 and uh, and the fact we don't really look the same? I said, oh, I hadn't really thought about whether they look the same, but there is that five-year gap between nine and 10. And he said, "Well, you know, the actual truth of it is, and I was told this when I was thirteen, that Sue is my mum. And so,
0: wow, your
1: yeah. mum? Yeah, My Sue. No, sorry, Sue is Dad's mum. Dad's mum. <laughs> <laughs> is that is that clear? Uh, yeah. yeah. So Dad was born in 1945, and and Sue was born in the late 19 early 1930s or late 1920s. And so it was a, and it's actually a common story as I've Known this story, I've heard it more and more that the older sibling in a family might have a baby, and then the baby would be incorporated into the parents' family. So,
0: so Auntie Sue is your grandmum.
1: She's my grandmother. So she so when I got fame in the 20th century, that was given to me by my grandmother. And she must have had an eye on all of us kids and on dad as well. Um with the, and it would be a you know it would have been a sadness associated with all of it you know in the sense that I didn't know about that and um, even right through to the time when Dad delivered Sue's eulogy two or three years ago he he delivered it as a sibling rather than as a as a oh, wow. son wow wow so okay. they chose not to have a public relationship as mother and son so during the eulogy you could have um you you, you definitely would have thought that he was just child number ten. Um, and it does make me think of, yeah, just the pain that you carry. Dad, Dad lived under the same roof as her for a long time, even after she started having her own family with her husband after after his birth, and then they move out and they don't take him, you know, and that's... Wow. That's hard, isn't it? It's just a different it's a different life, and it was a hard life, I think, for those big working-class families around the time of the war.
0: And, and how... Um, Tony, has that affected you, do you think? How how has that informed who you are as a man?
1: I think it's more affected Dad. And so Dad is an incredibly driven person who, you know, he played in a premiership for Hawthorne um, in 1971. And he's told me how he got onto the Hawthorne list. He, you know, on the year that he was drafted, he ran around on athletics track until he was sick each night because he thought, oh, they won't be as fit as me then. You know, and he's kind of got this... Thing I think if, if you're, when you find out that your, your sister's your mum a bit later in life, you don't really have a very close relationship with the people that have been kind of there as your ostensible mother and father or they're actually your grandparents. Um, I think that you just want to prove yourself. And so dad proved himself in footy and then proved himself in business and, and proved himself as a father. And, you know, there's been a lot about dad that is doing the next thing and I think that's um, something that I inherited from Dad. So, so that for him, you know, getting the assignment in and training hard and doing well and ticking that next thing um, and doing that next thing is important. So, I, I would say it's that that value of, of of constructing a life and making your life valuable uh, and, and and making your life mean something, because um, you know I think Dad's been brilliant at that.
0: So, in doing my research on you, uh, um, one of the themes that has come back loud and clear is you are famously hardworking. Have the people I've been talking to got that right or wrong?
1: I'm not sure. I think I'm, I'm I'm good at finishing things, and I'm. I think I have an idea, and I say let's make this happen, and I and I try not to leave it as a just an idea. And that's something that I learned in. With this thing called race around the world in 1998 i was an unhappy lawyer it was actually dad who had a chat to me and said you know it's your responsibility to create your happy life or to have a meaningful life what what a a
0: great message good on dad what a great message to say that to his son
1: yeah and i was a lawyer at the time so a lot of parents would be tempted to say you've got a comfortable and good and happy life in that direction um, but what dad said is you are unhappy as that, and it's now your job to make yourself happy. And, and I gave him a big speech about, yeah, yeah, well, I want to be a footballer. And he said, well, you're not going to be a footballer. You've been delisted twice, um, <laughs> <laughs> or you've tried, been delisted once and not drafted a second time. Um, and so I said, I want to be a writer and he said, well, if for a writer, you don't do any writing, you know, so he sort of had that ability to say, you know, you do it, go out there and do it. And it was in the months after that chat that I applied for a television show called Race Around the World and it was a life changer. It was national television and 10 countries in 100 days and and um, I went from being an unhappy lawyer to kind of, I mean, it was only ABC celebrity on, on every second week but we had a million viewers a, a, a week and, and it was a popular show and, and a launching pad for a lot of people and certainly that was the case for me.
0: your third choice you have chosen wonderful it's actually uh the shortest song that i'm going to add to the five my life spotify playlist we've had some long ones. we've had a 26 minute one and a 25 minute one this is under three minutes it's the first track and only single from paul kelly's first solo album post from st kilda to king's cross tell us about it
1: Uh, so i love this song and paul kelly in fact I would have answered if you gave. I, I like to play the sort of games you do to Nigel. If you had have said to me your five dinner party guests through the 1990s, I, I would definitely have included Paul Kelly in, in that kind of dream dinner party. He, I was pretty obsessed with him growing up and in my 20s. And in fact, I remember we always, you know, I'm six foot four. I remember seeing Paul Kelly with my mate, John Oraglaso, the big O, and we both loved him. And we were there at a live concert and we stood up and, and we were about four rows from the front. And normally as a six foot four people, he's six, six, he's even bigger. You're always conscious of the people behind you that you're wrecking the gig for. And so I'm always kind of skulking down and apologizing. (laughs) And, and Ora said to me, stand tall tones, Paul Kelly, stand (laughs) tall. We just stood up and we blocked them. It was that, (laughs) that, uh, salute towards our love for Paul Kelly. But my story, um, relating to the song, uh, is that on Race Around the World, one of the places I picked and we had to pick 10 countries to travel to on this TV show and you know, I tri- I picked um, uh, Bolivia, Idaho, Alaska, Italy, Lebanon, France, Israel, Kenya, India and China and one of my countries was Kenya and e- in each country we had to find a four-minute story and so I'd heard and in fact John Safran was the one who told me um, John Saffron said, "I was going to do a story about a thing called Group Africa. It's an advertising troupe that goes around Kenya, Tanzania, and Ethiopia. And basically, they go out into the rural areas. Um, and in that, in that era, I'm sure the internet and television and mass media is absolutely everywhere nowadays. But in the late in the late 90s, there were apparently some pockets of Tanzania, Ethiopia, and Kenya that were a little bit untouched. And so the multinationals." set up these massive trucks and speaker piles and they would have the ads all day and so basically there would would be you know teeth whitening teeth whitening competitions (laughs) where people would smile and you'd get um mr aquafresh would be crowned at the end of the pageant and so it was all about running around and dancing and playing music and talking about aquafresh toothpaste and this, that that was a lever in kitchen product. So, you know, this wasn't small town advertising. It was the multinationals finding a way to move product into small corners of Eastern Africa. It was an amazing story, a great story. And I did a, um, a piece on the actors in the show. And, in fact, I acted in the show as well. I was a cockroach in the Ridset commercial. <laughs> so my line was, um, you know, at one point I was on a stage in front of 7,000 people just dying spectacularly on my back as i was sprayed with a with an oversized ridsect aerosol <laughs> you know it's a really funny and, and weird stuff um and while i was filming that story because we had to do this whole thing ourselves we traveled by ourselves we used the camera ourselves did the sound ourselves found the story ourselves translated the interviews ourselves shotlisted it made edit scripts ourselves just us out there. So at one point I'm going around getting overlay pictures for this story of all the people in the crowd and pictures of the of the stacks of speakers and all that sort of stuff. And I find a DJ and he's there and he's running through. He must have he must have had 50 speakers that he had stacked up. He had the biggest sound that was blowing away the town of Kasumu in Kenya. And he's playing it all out of a little walkman. You know, he's playing tapes out of a Walkman that he'd fused cords and there was solder everywhere and he'd made this thing work and i showed him my discman and said you know haven't you gone to cds yet and he went that's fantastic can i use your discman because i have got some cds but i just didn't have a cd player so he takes my discman and he, he doesn't have any connectors again but we go out to the market out the back where there's you know everything from slaughtered goats to um to cables and Um, radios and whatever else and I just leave it with him so I continue to take my overlay and take my shots with my camera and I'm walking around this sort of magical scene of a town out enjoying itself in eastern Eastern Kenya and there's a bit of silence and a bit of crackle for a moment and then just booming out at 120 decibels for this Australian boy on, on an odyssey. It just goes, from St Kilda to King's Cross, it's 14 hours on a bus. You know, the most Australian name-checking of Capital cities song that you could think of came out from my CD collection, which I'd also given him. And, uh, and this uh, African DJ was stuck playing acoustic Paul Kelly to 7,000 people. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I can tell him you had one very happy audience member because it just made my heart leap at the time. Now,
0: and you've met uh, Paul subsequently, haven't you?
1: I have. So I played in – at the end of my footy career, I was playing in uh, the Community Cup, which is a thing down here in Melbourne where we have rock music people. Um, Playing against community radio people, so Triple R and PBS Megahertz play against the Rock Dogs. It's a fierce rivalry, and and sometimes as many as fifteen thousand people go to the Punt Road Oval or to the Junction Oval and watch the games. And I played in a dozen of these games. It was really fun. Like just at the end of my footy life to. To have a big crowd and a lot of vaudevilles, you know, a lot of uh, streakers and dogs and kids and pies and beers at half time, and you know, it's very. You, you end up. You, I played pretty well in a few of them because I was playing on you know 130 kilo roadies um, <laughs> who might not have had the most footy ability, but um, at the end, of one one of these years, um, Paul Kelly was the coach of the Rock Dogs, and and he came up to me and said, oh, "Hello, I've, I've really enjoyed watching you play over the years, Tony." And I went. You've enjoyed watching me play. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that was a that was a very nice moment. I, um, yeah, he's still in my dream dinner party.
0: What a legend! Your place in five of my life. You've chosen the eleventh largest football stadium in the world, the location of the nineteen fifty six Olympics, and the hallowed HQ of AFL, the MCG. Tell us if we aren't AFL nuts, about it and your story?
1: Well, the MCG is the one place in Melbourne that makes my heart skip every time. I can stand on the bridge in the city and look back over it and really feel like I'm in my city and I'm looking at the most special part of my city. And and there's no doubt that my upbringing as the son of a VFL footballer who played on that ground in the 1971 grand final with 118,000 people there that probably affects my love for it because I was born with this idea that I might one day go there or well, that that was the ultimate dream and so you know every every kick in the park was imagining the MCG and that one day I might walk on it and and not only that, Dad's um, strong connections in footy meant that from a very early age, I was seeing some amazing games there. I've, I've been to, to all but two grand finals since 1981 for VFL, AFL footy. So that's uh, a, a, an amazing number of grand finals and seen some incredible events there. Um, and, and so very much I was infected with the the majesty and the power of it. And it's not the most beautiful stadium in the world. You know, I've seen cricket at the Adelaide Oval and even the SCG, you could argue, is is a more beautiful ground than the MCG. But the MCG just has this uh, monstrous aura when you're in it. It's just like you're really small and the stands go up around you and then there's this beautiful green that kind of represents the possibilities of sport and a lot of the things that I've loved in my life. And, and so as I got further and further through my footy career, I hoped that one day it would come that I played on that ground. And I actually got a, um, a Twitter post a couple of weeks ago saying, here is the team list for the 1990 Elimination Final... Uh, Melbourne versus Hawthorne at the MCG and someone tagged me in because there I was wearing the number 21 Guernsey, um, Anthony Wilson, as I was called in the footy record. And uh, we've now just hit the 30th anniversary of the day that my dreams came true and that I stepped out onto the most famous sporting turf in Australia. And, and so the story doesn't end up having a Cinderella finish i in fact the most notable thing i did that day in my first wandering on the mcg was that a player by the name of david schwartz who is probably the unluckiest footballer to ever play footy because he put together two or three years in the early 90s that marked him as past possibly the greatest footballer of all time then he did three knees and his uh he became a, he became the ox he became a workmanlike footballer, but in the early '90s he was a gazelle. No one could jump like him. And there was a moment in that game where a very young David Schwartz launched himself up onto the back of my head. And anyone who's ever had a specky taken on them knows that it feels like you're getting punched in the back of the head. And so I went. I, I was thinking, "Who's hit me? Who's hit me?" And turned around, and then there it was. It was being replayed on the big screen. This this top it would make the highlight reel of David Schwartz's incredible career. Um, and there I was underneath it, propping him up. And that's probably my moment on the MCG that I stood under <laughs> a wonderful mark. Um, but but it's ended up, it, my love for footy and my love for the place hasn't diminished. And in, and in fact, I spent a year of my life writing a book called 1989, The Great Grand Final. And you could even argue that that game is the greatest game that's been played there. But, you know, I'll put in other sports as well. I saw Iran play the Socceroos in 1997 on the MCG. I saw Craig Mottram run that incredible race at the Commonwealth Games at the MCG. Um, And in fact, every Thursday before the grand final, every year, I'm the MC at the G um, at a function for Monash Blues Footy Club. And I often say the joke there that um, I grew up praying every night that I would one day play at the MCG in September. But unfortunately, God misheard me and thought I said, be the MC at the G <laughs> in <laughs> September. <laughs> Thanks for laughing, Nigel. It goes about that well each year as well. <laughs>
0: <laughs> now, you mentioned your book. Um, you've written 20 of the things, kids and adults. How, how, how do you uh, How do you find that process? Well,
1: it does vary according to the sort of book. I mean, a book like The Cow Tripped Over the Moon, I think I punched it out in about four and a half hours. It was a, a magical experience of just a, of an idea, which is that what if the cow didn't clear the moon first time? What if she took seven previous attempts with a bit <laughs> of slapstick thrown in? That that idea came um, and then the book just sort of rushed out and it was done in, you know, in, in a day. Uh, and then some other times it feels as though the you know they're like pulling teeth. Um, second novel took eighteen months, and um, and the 1989 book a lot of fun to do. Interview a lot of players and get around and and tell the story of a famous day. And you know it's it was it was a real revisiting of a happy time in my life because I was an under 19s player at the time. There I was in the outer orbit of Hawthorne, but there was this kind of superstar team full of big characters like Dippy Domenico and Dermot and. Gary Ayres and these other legends. And so, you know, that book was an excuse to go and have a chat to them. It was great.
0: Fantastic. It's a little bit like uh, this podcast. It's an excuse for me to talk to interesting people who I'd like to talk to. And you would be one of those people, mate. We are going to uh, go to your fifth choice, which uh, is often my favourite because it's usually the most quirky and sometimes the most personal. Uh, and so, have you got a drinking problem, mate? I'm not sure. You can tell us. You have chosen a crown lager bottle opener. Is that because it gets overuse or what? Uh, no,
1: it's nothing to do with the use. In fact, I've probably got three or four or five bottle openers, which would speak more to a drinking problem than my love for this item. But this item, um, after Race Around the World, I mentioned to you that, that it was almost an exercise in trying to do something and then it happening. It was, and I always, when I speak to kids at schools or unis or whatever, talk about sending in the application form and, or being in it to win it or, or you know, uh, just trying, I guess, and finishing and, and seeing what can happen. And, and when I came back, I was so infected with the joy of that that I started entering everything, including writing a children's book, which is sort of how that happened. I had the idea, sent it in, became a kids' author. Um, but I also entered for the sort of thrill of finishing and being part of a comp Twenty-five word or less competitions. So I won some bras once from Bendon. Um, can can won, you remember the line that won? I'm bending over in Benden.
0: <laughs> really? <laughs> Is that really the one?
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then I, I won one from Twentieth uh, Century Fox for the uh, for twenty-five best video VHS videos of the twentieth century for for 20th Century Fox, and I did Star Wars. I said, Darth had red and Luke had blue. Give sabre-colour schemes their due. They did their bit, however small, to create the greatest force of all. And I won my videos for that.
0: Nah, I prefer the bra one.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But then there was one um, that was for a dinner on the millennium of New Year's Eve, and we had to write in – 25 words or less. Why you wanted to spend the millennium with Crown Lager and ten of your mates, and you got a seven-course dinner overlooking the Yarra and the fireworks on the Millennium New Year's Eve. (laughs) And so I got into that, started, and I wrote my I wrote my rhymes for it, and and, um, mine were mine was my ten best friends written down would probably have to include Crown. So to my night of millennial heaven. I can, in fact, invite 11. That was my, um, I thought I was so smart and I started crying to my best mate. I, I thought I was great. I was saying, this is going to be, I'm going to win this, Daph. You got it. And Daph said, I'm going to enter as well. And he said, you haven't toadied hard enough. You haven't toadied hard enough to crown lager. You haven't sucked up to their brand enough and you won't win. Um, I'm going to beat you. So Daph, he enters and tells me what he's written. He writes, Between crown and friends, I'd have to choose because beer would win and friends would lose. But when you put the two together, millennial memories that will last forever, warmer, a bit more toadying. And so we get into this big uh, to and fro about who should win this crown dinner thing. And I get a call saying, uh, hi, we're from Crown Lager. You've won second prize. You've won a a bottle opener and a <laughs> slab of crown lager, congratulations, and two crown lager glasses. And I'm thinking, well, that's not bad. I came second, would have been a few entries, ring daff up to crow a bit. And he says, yeah, I just got, the, the woman's called me. We've won it, the <laughs> seven-course <laughs> dinner, over overlooking the Yarra at the, uh, with matching wines for each course. And I went, like, your toadying entry beat mine. I cannot <laughs> believe it. And we had a very competitive friendship and, yeah, a very beautiful friendship. We used to ring each other every day. We'd talk every day on the phone for a long time. And anyway, I, I was comfortable enough in the friendship to hang up on him. And uh, and he, he rang me back and said, what are you angry for? You know, you're going to get, I'm going to invite you to the dinner and uh, you're, you've are you got the slab and the bottle opener. If anything, I should be angry. You're up a slab and a, and a bottle opener on me. And so, um, and so we went to the dinner and, and had this incredible night with uh, my, my mate Daff, Chris Daffy. And, um, and and it was very much symbolic of a friendship that had gone uh, right through from 1997 to then. Um, and the reason why the bottle opener, which I've kept um, from that time, is so special to me, that, that in 2013, uh, get one of the worst days of my life, um, get the call from his other close friend, Ben, calls me up and says um, that, that Das committed suicide. And so, you know, this, we've got, we've had this friendship that's been over 20 years and, um, has had so many laughs, traveled around Europe together for six weeks. And, um, he was really a supporter of mine. Whenever I, you know, whenever I wrote anything, I'd put it past him and he was writing his own books as well. And we kind of had that, um. Sympatico that goes with creative careers where you can kind of have the euphoric moments but also the really big flat spots and and you know so he he was pretty much the the most important person outside of family in my life and and uh and for him to lose him when he you know he just sort of gave up i guess um on on the condition that you know people talk about a lot more um thankfully but you know he had his depression and he gave up on it and um and and so you know i've got a few items that represent him that that are very special to me and this crown lager bottle opener is one of those
0: what a story i, I mean gosh how how moving and sad and did you i mean have any inkling of how badly uh, low he would get or or was it a complete bolt from the blue
1: no. So he didn't talk to any of us about his depression. And that's what I find so hard now because you sort of think, um, was he being treated properly? Was the right amount of antidepressants being prescribed? You know, and I think he was riding roughshod to some extent on those aspects without much support. And so, you know, you look back and, and think, you know, we didn't know enough and we didn't help enough. Um, and I think he always perceived himself as the fun one. Yeah, and he was. He was just hilarious. You know, so many funny things that he did. You know, there was one, I traveled around Europe with him in Paris. He used to play a game called Bonsoir or Bon Snub. And that was where you, you go up to a Parisian and you say a big, warm, happy Bonsoir. And if they say Bonsoir back, you get a point for a Bonsoir. But if they don't speak to you, you have been bond snubbed. And so we would <laughs> collect who could get the most bonsoirs, who get the most bond snubs. And he would he would invent these kind of ridiculous games. So much fun. I'd never laughed harder. And um, and I think he thought that his depression would somehow diminish this light that he shone. And so when he was in those phases, and you know, and you hear words like manic depression now that that some people are up then down. He was so funny, like I can't believe that he was down at the time he was this funny. So it's possible that 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 was more how his depression manifested. But, uh, yeah, it was really, it's really hard to think that he was, you know, no one was really with him for those times. And I think he just tucked himself away and said, I'm not ready for everyone out there for a while, but then when I appear I'll still be the magical light of the party and, and, I don't want to pollute any of that with, um, talking about depression. And so the fact that there was no, um, talk about it meant none of us did anything.
0: Thank you for sharing that story, mate. Um, tell me about you as a father.
1: So, uh, I am a father of four, so it's very, um, so constant. Is, same here, mate. The children themselves and the feeling of being a father is so beautiful. You know, I often think of the day I became a father. And, and, and you can't really explain that bolt of love, I think. And, um, and it doesn't really diminish, you know, I, I haven't found that it does, um, that, you know, I remember spinning in a field, singing the killers, um, all the things that I've done, uh, on the day I became a dad and it was raining and I was like Julie Andrews spinning in, in, around in circles. It was, that was just this sort of feeling of happiness and singing along and not caring who was looking at me it was that really just couldn't believe how happy I felt. Um, and, and, in some respects there's, um, in terms of the feeling, the, the, the profound nature of the love, I think it's, um, incomparable and, and sort of not able to be explained either to some extent. I always say that to dads that you, th- you sort of know in an abstract sense, you're going to love them, but then you don't really know until you love them. And, uh, and, and that's, I certainly still feel that, but, but at the same time, the, the, the actual drain of it the daily grind and we have the additional challenge that, um, one of my kids, Jack has cerebral palsy and he has a, it affects four of his limbs and he has cortical vision impairment as well. So he's not very strong visually. And so he's in a wheelchair. He doesn't, um, sit unassisted. He doesn't crawl or or walk. Um, he won't walk. Um, you know, these are the sort of realizations you come to slowly over a cerebral palsy diagnosis so you you come into it with the doctor saying we found this scan we see these patches that are bad news they mean that part of the brain has been damaged in these spots like that and we could see the spots fanning out over jack's brain scan and so you sort of think oh well, what's that going to mean does it mean he's going to not drive does it mean he's not going to be employed and you sort of have these chats to the the um, person, the paediatrician who's giving you the bad news, and they say you're going to have to wait and see. And really, the the feeling of the next years is waiting and seeing. And so, you know, and you you, you learn more and more throughout. And, and we've learnt, I think, I think it's been a pretty brutal path for us. You know, that there's a lot of things that Jack isn't going to be able to do, um, and I guess independence that parents hope for more than anything else in terms of the longer term is the is the biggest concern for us and on the short term draining nature of fatherhood you know the what will i do in the next half hour well it just never ends so you know the kind of even just parking someone in front of an ipad the other kids can all be parked in front of an ipad and make their way around the ipad and choose the things they want to watch whereas jack needs you to keep moving and changing the song or going back to the start of the song or choosing something else. And, and so even apart from all the issues that go with feeding and dressing and toileting and moving and, um, exercising and finding therapists, um, you know, you add into the equation, the minutely change the song. It's just, so there's no rest. You, your brain gets no rest and, um, and you end up, I think, uh, frazzled and you end up not as good a person as, as when you're, when you're not frazzled. So, um, you know, I, I, I find that the best things in life have been associated with fatherhood, but, um, I would also say it can exact a toll when you're under the sort of demand that I think
0: my wife and I are under. Thank you, mate, for, for telling us that. We're going to um, come onto your last question <laughs> who would you like to hear on five my life next and why
1: oh, I, I know I, sh- I have had forewarning of this because've I've listened to quite a few of the episodes um look I'm gonna pick the person who I picked to be the first speech I ever put up on Speakola um, right. he uh, is a Melbourne comedian uh, but he is a brilliant storyteller Um, He's also written a a feature film called The Merger. He's uh, been on some TV shows like um, some of the footy panel shows. um, But he's one of my favourite people and favourite comedians. And I think, uh, you know, when you talk about objects, I chose him for the show and tell for grown-ups as well as Rob Carlton. And his show and tell for grown-ups story was just an absolute beauty. So I think he'll really suit the format. His name's Damien Callanan. And for mine, he actually has the funniest podcast going around at the moment, which is called the Bodgy Creek Community Podcast. He basically creates a fictional universe around a town of Bodgy Creek, where he's the football coach and alpaca farmer. And Damien Callinan has a knack for storytelling and words that I think is right up there with the best in the country. And he'd really do well in this
0: format tony wilson you are a dead set legend mate thank you very much for preparing and choosing and sharing your five choices on five of my life i really appreciate it thank you nigel the five of my life was presented by me nigel marsh producer alex mitchell sound production and theme music by darcy thompson and matt nicholish listener.